My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Gail Karen Young. Gail is a catalyst for human development and organizational development. She is a mentor, a teacher, an empath, a systems thinker. It's not yet on her LinkedIn page or her resume, but she's a healer. And we explore that identity, that archetype of healer in this conversation today. She has, um, as a leader, worked as the chief culture and talent officer at the Wikimedia Foundation, which is the foundation responsible for Wikipedia and all of its sister projects devoted to free knowledge and free information. And she now is in private practice working with uh, leaders and many different sectors. And many of these sectors are at the front lines of what ever is to come for us as a species, as a society. So Gail works in places that matter with people who are connected to the question of where are we going and how might we get there together. Our conversation today begins with this question of belonging, what it is to belong somewhere, to belong to a group, to a people. And inside of the word belonging is the word longing, the ways in which we can lose ourselves and be far away from what feels like home. And what does it take for us to either find our way back there or to create the conditions to remember that, in fact, we're already home everywhere we are on this planet that has given rise to us. We dance at liminal spaces in this conversation between polarities of stability and possibility between the fierce violence that exists in, in humanity and also the sublime beauty. And we work with what we call together the imaginal gap or the imagination gap, which science fiction and fantasy writers and poets and creators of many stripes have leaped across to imagine what might be if we could somehow solve for the, the rivalrous, violent, scarcity-driven ways of being that, that populate so much of our society? What if we could somehow resolve, repair, restore something deeper and truer, even as we acknowledge the many differences that are real, the wonderful diversity that is here? So people have leapt across that imagination gap to imagine possible futures, and we play in that space. But we also play with the question of what is it to stand right at the very 
lip of that chasm right at the very edge and stare down into the gap and not know how to build a bridge across and yet nevertheless be willing to start to put the foundations in the soil to begin to build that bridge. And this is not clean work. This is sensitive, nuanced, highly charged work that asks all of us to be able for a, a phrase that she she draws in an Irish phrase to be able for whatever life has in store for us. So let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Gail has for us. Hi, Gail. Hello, Andy. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. It's such a pleasure to be here. Mm, mm, really a pleasure to have you. Uh, it's been a while since we connected a few months ago, and uh, I'm really excited that we found our way back together here. 2022. 2022. <laughs> here we are. So you mentioned that you brought a um, a poem that we might start with. Is that right? From Lucille. I brought the poem, Won't You Celebrate With Me by Lucille Clifton. Mm. I love mm. the title. Yes. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see except to be myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay. My one hand holding tight, my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and failed. I think we live our lives on this bridge between starshine and clay. Mm. And even if something hasn't tried to kill you every day, um, literally, because we live in a world um, by and large protected, although I say that in the midst of, a, of an ongoing pandemic, um, <laughs> I just had this experience when I was in South Africa a number of years ago um, out on safari that I did not know how to walk through that landscape. Mm. Mm. And it was such a landscape that's so alien to me, who is um, so urban in so many ways, mm. that um, I'm like, I don't know how to walk through this landscape and be alive. I would not know how to survive here 24 hours. And I thought of our, our, our deep ancestral lines, mm. you know, mm. this, uh, mm. how inherently, by the very definition of our being here, um, and this is. Uh, a line of thought borrowed from my husband, David White, that we are inherently survivors because we're here. And so some unbroken line of ancestors all the way back. And that's the other thing about South Africa that I found so fascinating is the, is the sense of like our, our oldest, oldest, deepest home. Mm. Um, mm. That there is an unbroken line all the way back there. Mm. Thanks for presencing that, Gail. Yeah. I've been uh, over the past year or two, maybe really over almost the past four years since my daughter was born, she'll be four in March. I have mm -hmm. been in touch with that reality in a way that I hadn't yet been. And um, a part of me really believes that, that the source of much of what ails us as a sort of society uh, and maybe even as a species is connected to 
connected to that disconnection, connected to that way in which we can arrive somewhere that we were born in and feel out, feel alien to it. You know, that, that actually that is your home. And yet we don't know how to be in it anymore. And I wonder, I wonder how that lands with you. Part of the paradox of being human, right? It's a paradox of belonging, you know, the, this, um, and, and that word has resonance in all sorts of ways. I actually think that those of us who know exile, I'm an immigrant, and um, we know exile in a thousand different ways, you know, the, the immigration happens to be one of them. Um, but those of us who know exile um, have both a particular need for belonging sometimes and also a um, for me, a, a calling to create spaces of belonging for others, which is mm-hmm. how I ended up in the work of, of culture, of organizational mm-hmm. life, I think. But um, belonging is an interesting one because it's, it, it's, a, it's the paradoxical state that we are inherently, just by being already belonging, right? We're trying to find our way back to something that we already inherently are just by existing. Um, and yet the sense of isolation, alienation, is so real and it's, it's exacerbated by the patterns that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. You know, I find myself in those patterns when I do online shopping or I, you know, <laughs> need to go to Starbucks and like there's the, 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 the patterns of consumerism and social media and this projection out of self. Um, and I lo- and I say this as a person who loves technology. Um, so this constant dance between outward and inward mm-hmm. and trying to mm-hmm. find our place, you know, here on this bridge between starshine and clay, you know, the great poet Rilke always talked about how we were neither one thing or the other. And that, you know, as with so many things, how do you turn that into a feature and not a bug? You know, to use technology <laughs> terms, right? How do you, uh, what is it about this way that we can hold this that can actually create wider spaces of belonging rather than just only wider alienations? Mm. But it's a, it's a, it's a pond that ripples both ways. Totally. Mm-hmm. What are some of the ways that you are, inviting yourself and others to that question right now? What are some ways that you're working to create spaces of belonging or, or what are some of the elements that you see as being powerful or essential to invite people back into that belonging? There's actually a text that I've been working on. So it's funny that you evoked mm. on that, but the mm. first piece of it um, begins with, I think actually a lot of work similar to what you do, which is to create the capacity to drink from a deeper well which I think fundamentally is what Wonder Dome is, right? It's a place where you come to drink from a deeper well. And that's the first piece of it, right? Mm -hmm. When we source ourselves in our day-to-day off of Facebook or Twitter or or the 24-hour media cycle, you know, the the addiction to news, um, it's uh, we react, we don't respond. Mm. You know, so the first capability set is to to be with in order to be responsive to it, not just reacting. Mm. Um, and mm-hmm. part of the distinction I draw there is um, response comes from a place that is um, both who you are and aligned to your values and um, in the sort of Buddhist sense of right action appropriate to a moment mm-hmm. and holds some kernel of imagination. And reacting is just like, you know, reacting, which there's nothing wrong with. Like, you know, if your four-year-old's running towards the street, you better be reacting. You better be reacting quickly, right? There's no, there's no need to check in on values alignment. There you are. You're going to instinctively respond. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. But um, I think that that as there is more to react to in the world, the more that um, I go back to the old Viktor Frankl quote, which I love so much, is that between stimulus and response is a space, and in that space lies our freedom. Mm. 
Mm. That space is cultivated, I think, first by drinking from a deeper well. Mm. Mm. I'm in touch with, uh, you use the phrase, be with as part of our capacity to respond. And that really landed with me. Um, mm. Like a reaction to react is a sort of like, there's a sort of like a kind of a getting away from energy in that, like, get this away from me. This is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Stay away from that road. It's dangerous. You know, like get away from that. And, uh, and we're sort of swimming in so many things that actually maybe some of us need to be able to react to those things because we're right there on the front lines of us, of it. But so many of us need to learn how to, to simply be with those realities so that we can respond. And, uh, I'm just really glad you're naming that because the response has this kind of coming towards that feels really important right now when so many of us are pushing away and, and uh, just really resonates with me. I both want to normalize it and also say that if it's the place that you catch yourself acting from all the time, that's just exhausting. Mm. Mm-hmm. So there's an energy spend that, that does cost us, mm. right? And it becomes habituated. And then we're like that all the time. I found myself there in the early days of COVID, like, trying to sense making it was trying to do when the situation was changing day by day. And, you know, we didn't even know how to be like, I didn't even know how to go to the grocery store one day, getting a carton of milk is normal and, 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 and not at all complex. And the next day I'm staring at a sign in front of it being like, do I need, like I have a mask, you know, homemade by somebody. Do I need gloves? Do I, I don't even know how to come into the grocery store and buy a gallon of milk right now. I have to like disinfect it and clean it down before. Exactly. If it arrives on my doorstep, you know, do I have to leave it outside for a day? And, you know, it was the, the, um, the learning curve on that Mm. was steep. And I was very much in my own reactive, you know, um, patterns. So it was, it was really, it was a great, uh, point of observation of both self and society watching everybody trying to make the best decisions with what they have. But the, Mm. the move I think in responding, that's also part of being with is an integrative move, meaning that you're able to integrate this and that, right. That it doesn't become a just a tension point between say safety and freedom, but that you're actually dancing with and trying to navigate both safety and freedom. So what are some of the, what's a a well, a deeper well that you're drinking from these days, Gail, that's helping you stay anchored in belonging? Um, There's a few. Um, I have another uh, edict or maxim, which is to continue to find deep allies. Mm. It's like finding the people who may not be doing the exact same kind of work you're doing, and it doesn't even matter, but you know that they care about a similar universe of things. Mm. Mm. And so these knowing and working with deep allies in the world mm. is a really important mm. capability. You know, it's, it's a way of creating spaces of belonging. Um, and I don't even think that allies, like I, I'm, a, I'm, I've got a curious, um, idea that you like like what does it mean to kind of find even unholy allies and what i mean Ooh, by unholy I, more, yeah. I use that word slightly provocatively is like like the ones that are in orthogonal spaces the unexpected ones mm. you know the the places you find um something in common with someone who's unlike you mm. so i'm saying you're not i i don't think you have to look for same you know but mm. it's this idea mm. that um that 
you know, we get we get to choose who we walk alongside and the journey is long and unexpected. And, you know, I find myself coming across people that I've known from an event 15 years ago in a new space and setting and been delightfully surprised. You know, I don't know when I'll encounter you again or what space, but I trust because that we do work in similar spaces hmm. around wonder, consciousness, the future, that we will be, um, you know, in the same atmosphere, mm. Mm. you know, that you mm. care so much about your children, you know, and I think about my four-year-old niece and mm. what a, um, I'm seeing her today and how, oh, how precious she is and how much I care about this world that she'll grow up into, you know, that is a shared horizon between us, regardless of where we are, or what differences or how often we've encountered each other in the past. That really puts me in touch with a number of moments I've had in my life that, um, I'm, as I get older, I'm coming more and more aware of what a privilege these moments are and sort of what a, like they're, they almost feel like moments of grace that just unbelievable that they happen where you arrive somewhere and without knowing it, I'll speak for myself where I have arrived places with, and without knowing it, I find myself suddenly at home. Yes. Even, even if um, I may be literally thousands of miles from, from the place where I have a roof that I sleep under mm -hmm. and, uh, and the people who I feel at home with, I may know some of them, I may know their biographies. Uh, I may have shared other instances of experience with them, but others I'm like meeting for the first time, but there's just this, this amazing human capacity to sort of know each other, even if we don't know a lot about each other. And that's not to say there's not value in knowing a lot about each other. I think there's then deep power in hearing people's stories and, and actually learning their biographies, but just there's something really like a state of grace where to be with other people and feel like I'm with my people and I'm their people. And yeah. I just like wish more, like that's a wish I have for us as a species is that we could have more of those moments that feel not rivalrous, like these are my people and those are not my people, but rather just this kind of homecoming of, oh, I can be well, home here. What makes me sad about that, um, that sort of tribal rivalry, which is useful in parts of our history and parts of our lives again. Yeah. Um, and it's useful in us getting to know ourselves, to know ourselves as part of a tribe, right? It's an early way of learning it. Um, but at some point it becomes, it becomes self-limiting. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you know? And that I think um, I'm a developmental psychologist by training. So it, each, each developmental stage is, has its own um, uh, limitations, but it also has its self, own self-reinforcing uh, <laughs> belief system, right? Yeah. So in order to be belong, I have to belong as part of this tribe. In order to belong as part of this tribe, I have to be this thing. If I'm not thing, this thing, then I don't belong to this tribe. Mm. You know, At some mm. point, you have to test that identity structure in order to grow beyond it, mm. which doesn't mean that you can't keep some identity to that tribe. It does mean that you have to renegotiate your identity to that tribe. And that skill set, I think, is a, uh, isn't one that's necessarily taught by the tribe, um, you know, it, uh, and it's a, it's a skill set that one has to um, figure one's way out until, Yeah. you know, and I think, again, this, when I go back to the little soul Clifton poem, I started off with me, what, won't you celebrate me? What I have shaped, mm. you know, into a life. I think we are all, mm. Um, inherently just figuring out how to shape a life. Mm. 
And do we do it from an expansive capacity or do we do it from a uh, constrained one? Do we do it from love or do we do it from fear? Mm. Mm. Yeah, your invitation to find unholy allies speaks so mm. clearly to that capacity because, you know, you could I could locate a part in, in me that would be afraid of that, that would be afraid of what 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 risks I might have to take or what dangers I might put myself in to be in a space with someone who um, my more tribal parts of me are afraid of or see as different and see as the other or the unknown. But then to discover this, uh, I don't know, I don't know what, what the right sort of metaphor is, but there's something deeper maybe, or, or something in the fabric beneath the, the difference. It's like you have two pieces of a quilt and if you look at each one, they look so different. And yet there you see that they're woven together. There's something there that uh, I hear you inviting us into when you say seek unholy allies. There's a certain kind of wholeness. In a, and, and usually if you find something really unacceptable in someone else, it's usually because you find something <laughs> that they resonate, they echo that part of you yourself that you find unacceptable is what I've tended to find about human yeah. beings. Right? Yeah. I had that experience with my four-year-old this morning yeah. where she was very much in a like, that's mine energy. And I was like, that's enough of that mine energy. And I was like, oh boy, I've been in that. I've been in that energy before. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, I was once, I was in the middle of a divorce and I um, had a realization that if I interacted with people who treated me as though I was just okay, you know, that was fine. Um, it didn't, it didn't inherently um, acknowledge the part of me that just wasn't okay. Mm. But if I was mm. with people that treated me as though I wasn't okay, it missed the part of me that was also inherently fine. Mm. And so I really found myself, um, gravitating towards people who could hold both my okayness and not okayness at the same time. And I really think there, there is something, a, a wider um, uh, kinship of experience to um, being human. Like we need to both acknowledge our differences and this is where all the diversity inclusion work is coming in. And we um, need to acknowledge the, the oneness, you know, that, that I, I derive my tradition set as more, um, Buddhist, you know, I, um, there is that sense of oneness, shared humanity, but also being of one with this planet and place. You know, we are inextricable from air and sunlight uh, and and the sea. I was, uh, I had the, um, I traveled for the first time out of the country this mm. past January for the last mm. few years. And my husband and I were in Costa Rica and every day, I swam in the warm sea and it was more restorative than anything else I could have possibly imagined, like in a way that I'd forgotten how restorative being mm. in the sea could be. And, and what a deep ally to ourselves as human beings, as much as any family, friend, lover, that the sea and sunlight and sky could be. Mm. So, mm, I love that idea to like, we can also seek allies in our belonging to the world and in the ocean and the sky and the wind and the trees. Yeah. Mm. Well, a part of me is really happy that you got to go to Costa Rica. Another part of me is deeply envious and I'm really, but I'm glad you've got that, that space. I can, I can, I'm like, just already part of me is like, okay, I'm going to go imagine myself on that, on that beach that you were at. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. that, that faculty for imagination is such a compelling one. I'm it is. I mean, we've talked a bit about the, uh, not on this recording yet, but just about the essential 
quality of imagination to help us see our way forward. And um, yeah, maybe this is a good moment to presence that. I know that you have spent quite a lot of your professional life and personal life interacting with people and also contributing in your own ways to possible futures, some of which to some listeners or to some people might seem wildly impossible. And I wonder if we like play with that a little bit. My client next week that I get to work with is the Roddenberry Foundation and they're lovely. It was as an, as in Gene Roddenberry, as in Star. All right. All right. Hold on. I just have to have a nerd out moment. Let me let it go. Okay. Continue. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, when I so when we were doing our retreats in person with the Roddenberry Foundation, they had the captain's chair from the original Star Trek. Set, oh so my gosh! Come let on. me sit in it. It was fantastic. Come on, Costa Rica, the captain's chair. Now you just now you yeah. just. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to admit, I partly said yes to this engagement because I'm a longtime Star Trek fan, mm. right? Uh, mm. And I think the reason why is because as a little um, Chinese kid growing up in a very rural town in America, um, the central coast of California, uh, it was a place I could kind of locate myself. You know, it was, mm. a, it, it was a place that I could say, hey, there is a, um, a bridge that has a Russian and a Black woman and um, Chekhov and, and Uhura and, and, and Sulu um, as an Asian man on it. Yeah. And they were all playing together. So it was a, it was kind of a post cold war post, uh, post human in the, in the aliens on the same world where the, the things that made us different from one culture or another were less different, certainly than when you have a, a, (laughs) when you have a Klingon on the bridge, you know, when you have an alien on the bridge and that was a fascinating set of perspective taking. And so I learned diversity, um, you know, it's just seeing how much it's been in the organizational set of conversations since mm. George Floyd. But I learned mm. diversity through um, Gene Roddenberry's Vulcan um, edict of, of diversity, which is infinite diversity and infinite combinations. You know, mm. it's the Vulcans mm. held this, mm. this sense of you you value you value um, the universe, not just the natural environment, the universe, because it has served forth. You know, for all our experiencing infinite diversity and infinite combinations you only have to go Mm. to a dog park and see the infinite number of dogs you know that are just like like the kinds and the shapes and you know you know some people love corgis with their little short legs you know i love my fuzzy australian shepherds and and there is that sense of of such diversity even in that one species right in our human species Mm. in the Mm. canine species Mm. Um, but much less you know even if you love roses how many thousands of kinds of roses are there Mm. Mm. um which i I loved coming at diversity and inclusion and belonging from the kind of wonder that Gene Roddenberry brought in. So that visioning of the future was, I think, early in my um, early in my upbringing and formation. And it was something I shared with my father, you know, as, mm. as, as uh, mm. we, we, we love to watch Star Trek together. And so Ugh. I think credit him with my geek roots. And it also gave me a really healthy appreciation for technology. Like I wanted well, first of all, I would still like the transporter and I would like <laughs> shuttlecrafts and I would like, um, um, uh, uh, you know, it was a world where they had basically solved because we have enough resources. Let's just be very real. We have enough resources right now to feed, clothe and educate every single yeah. person on this planet. That yes. is not that's right. the issue, right? And, and right. Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future had 
had assumed that we had successfully navigated. Right. Um, it's not a gap in, in resources. It's a gap in distribution. Hmm. Um, but hmm. I love that the future presumed that so that we could be liberated to explore um, more. Yeah. And I was really excited about that. I also think the role of science fiction, I was evoking uh, this uh, book called Octavia's Brood. Mm-hmm. And uh, its founders, uh, its authors, its uh, uh, compilers, uh, Walida Imashira and Adrian Marie Brown, um, as activists, were saying, you know, we believe it's our right and responsibility to write ourselves into the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and a beautiful possible future, right? That, that, um, that there's a possibility in the fantastic, the startling, the unexpected. You know, it's not just one um one unfolding into the next it is um uh you know it is magical and and this is where i really love the words of john paul lederach who's done a lot of work on this idea called moral imagination mm-hmm. and uh, i think his work is so phenomenal which he says we need an imagination essentially big enough to encompass thriving in those we consider other mm-hmm. you know that, that mm-hmm. a future has to include the thriving of those we consider other and that active imagination is no um, is no small thing because it risks you being branded as a traitor by the by your own side. You know, it, it carries quite a lot of risk in it to act with that kind of imagination for activists, mm-hmm. for political dissidents, for for all of that. And so, I think um, this fostering of imagination is such a critical point in that belonging. Mm. And that goes back to the thing that we're saying that navigating the, the other, the, the paradox of otherness and sameness also requires that imagination. Yeah. You know, it's not a logical bridge. Yeah, it's not. It's an imagine, imaginative bridge. And, and you referred to sort of the, the, the resource gap or the distribution gap, but, but in a way you're naming the imagination gap, right? Like there is mm. this gap and Gene Roddenberry sort of said, I'm going to assume we crossed it so mm-hmm. that I can, so that I can imagine like if we were to cross it, if we were, could actually be in a world where that included the thriving of the quote unquote other, as John Paul Lederach said, look at what, look at what would, could be possible for us as a species. Like, wow. And then here we are in this moment, sort of sitting some of us are perhaps attempting to like drive the piles of the first part of the bridge, but the gap is still right here with us. And there's something you said about, uh, about that insight of uh, imagining a world where the other is thriving that, and the risks that entailed with that. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit more and whatever way you've seen that show up in your work or in yourself or in others that you've engaged with the, the kind of the daring uh, we have to ask of ourselves to step towards the gap and start building a bridge as opposed to just saying like, I'm not going to go near that gap because I, I could lose something. Well, one of the things I've noticed about identity structures is the, is, is one a particular piece of it comes under threat the more you're aware of it, right? Like mm. in the in the wake of Asian American violence in the United States, I said I became much more keenly aware. Was, you know, the, my awareness of it ebbs and flows. It's not a static thing, mm. you know, being being Chinese in America. Mm. And I was aware of it coming to the forefront mm. and uh, feeling a protectiveness and 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 a and a, 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 a wanting to entrench a bit. And certainly, I think some of that is um, useful and necessary. Um, 
it also required me to in, in, inhabit my Asian identity differently. Mm. You know, I, I, I noticed mm. myself leading it with more, leading with it more frequently than I otherwise would. Mm. Just like I started integrating more evidently into my biographies and into my speaking about myself, my immigrant identity in the wake of anti-immigration sentiments post-2016. You know, so it's interesting to me that that the ways I describe myself are partly in relationship to the cultural context that we move through, what I'm willing to put forward and what I'm willing to, to background, um, knowing that there's a lot of different pieces in play. Um, the, um, the, the place where you... It, where it gets dangerous to acknowledge common ground um, or to say... Um, you know, I, the, these, these conversations around race and gender right now are really fraught, mm. right? Yeah. Um, it's hard to say, um, kind of pull up a clean example that doesn't out folks. This might be one of these, let's see how this comes out. You know, it, it, um, You know, I was really in a difficult conversation with a client who was a white founder in an organization where there were accusations of racial discrimination. Mm. Mm. And certainly the entire organizational structure of this NGO tilts towards privilege as the structures of NGOs do do because of fundraising, because of boards, because of just the inherent, it's, it's, Power is inherently baked into organizational structure. Mm -hmm. um, there were two issues in play. You know, one, how do you really look in the face? Like I would, I never ever want to dismiss a woman's experience, especially a woman of color, who feels at the behest of racial racial discrimination. Mm. At the same time what was unable to be questioned was in the cultural environment, there was an inability to make, for the white leader, to make any kind of criticism or feedback without reinforcing white supremacy. And so this woman was just disappearing into herself. Mm. Mm. And the complexity of that situation, right? And how to engage in it. Mm. You know, mm. Mm. If, I, if I attempted to put forward that there's a possible, there's a possibility that the white leader had a legitimate perspective, I'm suddenly seen as going against the sister. Mm. Mm. If I only um, put forward that the experience is wholly one of, of racial discrimination, um, then I risk losing some nuance in the situation Yeah, as a whole. And it was a really tough one to be in. It was a really tough one to be in, mm. right? And, and the truth is not clean in that. The truth mm -hmm. is absolutely not clean. Mm. Is the system uh, is the system inherently tilted one way or the other? Absolutely. And um, is the trauma there real? But what I also know about trauma is it makes outsize uh, 
a wound in the moment because it's tied to yeah. a history and a re-traumatization and a um, and all of the ways in which um, culture has enacted on individuals um, a, a toll for not conforming to the um, the normative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it is a risky thing. What is the thing to do in that moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. I'm in touch with whatever the thing is or the things, perhaps, perhaps the many things to be done in that moment or over the series of a, a number of yeah. moments that that is when we talk about in an, in an sort of optimistic abstract way, a future where we have moved beyond these divisions that are producing so much trauma and pain in ourselves and in society that, that whatever possibility for that future exists is it exists in, in that relationship right there. And in every other relationship where two people are held by the roles they play in the context they're in and are nevertheless willing to find a way to heal and repair like that. When we talk about the work of, of racial healing, like it's got, if it's going to happen anywhere, it's going to happen right in those relationships. Cause otherwise where does it happen? And it requires on one side, an ability to surrender power. And it requires mm. on the other side, an ability to not only be the enactment of trauma. Mm. Those are two very big asks. Yeah, those are such big asks. Wow. Those are such big asks. Mm. Um, and mm. it was, it, you know, just, it was a really difficult one. And it took community to do it. That's mm. one thing I will say. Like, you can't do it. You can't mm. go it alone. Mm. You know, it took the community. It took the organization. It, 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 took, it took learning. It took time. Mm. You know, it took self-analysis. It took, um, it took a lot. And it was messy. And as so many of these things are, they, these are not clean. They're not clean interactions. They don't get solved. You don't get to mediate and facilitate it and come to a certain outcome and, and check a bunch of boxes and be done with it. Right? That's not <laughs> how the conversations go. Uh, as much as we would just like, particularly from our position of power, which is really love for that to be possible. Cause boy, that's how we built this business is by finding a problem and throwing resources at it and solving it. So why can't we do that again? Ah, <laughs> we'll never arrive partly yeah. because as uh, the because the cultural context is evolving like yeah. diversity and inclusion work and that's so that used to be so little of what i did like I, and i would still say it's not the primary form of what i do but i think if you're not mindful of that in the at least in american context right now um, i haven't seen it quite to the same degree in european context although it's certainly there um if you're not mindful of it as a backdrop of your work, because it is such an ongoing American conversation mm. and organizations, mm. um, th- that work has changed significantly in, in the last 20 years. Mm. You know, mm. there used to be like, if you were just aware enough, you know, if you were, if you could just be mindful and culturally sensitive enough, that was enough, you know, mm. to a certain degree. Mm. And that is, um, that is insufficient mm. in this era. Mm. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. And I just want to honor the, the delicacy involved with uh, presencing a real example that also respects kind of the intimacy that you had to create with that organization for any of that work to even be possible. So thank you for that. We have in a, in a loose way been, I think, 
kind of playing with this text that you're working on where you've named sort of drink from a deeper well, find unholy allies. I don't know if this is part of the text, but we've named like see the imaginal gap and find some ways to cross it and and the, the risks involved. Yeah, the I moral imagination. Imaginative capacity. Yeah. Um, another one of mine is seeing the hidden symmetry in things. Ah, you know, um, which I think is really important. So when I work with culture, I work with them with all of these paradoxes and polarities. And polarities is based off of the work of Barry Johnson, but I think I've been interested in it just for a very long time. In fact, it was in, even in the Lucille Clifton poem, Between Starshine and Clay. Mm. You know, we live mm. between these two things. Um, uh, so when I talk about working with culture, I, I talk about working with the mythic and the mundane. You know, where you work with the mythic, you work with the organizational values, the the um, uh, mission, the reason for being the the founder's story, um, uh, the why it came to being. And, you know, if that mythic sense of the journey that an organization is on is misaligned with the very pragmatic things, the way decisions are made, um, uh, parental leave policy, you know, how you treat sick days and vacation. If those two things are fundamental, I mean, it's misaligned, meaning hey, we're all a family, but you get penalized if you take too many days. You know, like there are so many yeah, ways that yeah. um, that organizations actually dive into what I call unintentional organizational hypocrisy because a value that they have, say like transparency. So when I was Wikipedia's chief people officer, we talked as an organization a lot about transparency. Mm. Well, mm. transparency looks different at a 10-person organization than a 20, than a 40, than a 100-person, than a 200-person mm. organization. Mm. So it can look like you're just getting more and more hypocritical as the organization grows, rather than um, the perspective that your the maturation of your internal communication system hasn't happened apace with mm. organizational growth. Mm. Mm. And mm. so this this need to weave together the mythic and the mundane um, is really uh, critical in organizational life. Mm. And there are a thousand other of these uh, hidden symmetries that you need to be attending to as a leader, like stability and change, right? Mm. How do you have a core of what you build on and yet be responsive to the the world as it unfolds? How do you have a, a sense of your core capabilities and strategy and um, and yet um, know that as things happen, you're going to need to make decisions amidst incredible ambiguity and, and things like supply chain disruption. I mean, that's a very tangible piece. And um, and I even love the slide I'm going back to, uh, uh, the uh, Octavia's Brood that was written for Octavia Butler. You know, this this idea that um, uh, that these science fiction authors who have contributed to this science fiction compilation that are activists, um, there's a line in the introduction that says, we want organizers and movement builders to be able to claim the vast space of possibility, to be birthing visionary stories using their everyday realities and experiences of change in the world, they can form the foundation for the fantastic. And we hope build a future where the fantastic liberates the mundane. Like mm. those are, mm. it's mm. the, we need the, we need both. Yeah. Both yes. For some reason, my daughter is here in my, my awareness right now. And there's something about, um, and this maybe connects back to where we started around this generational lineage that we all participate in there's something both tremendously mundane about trying for the love of god please get your boots on so we can go outside please because it's warm out right now like 
the mundanity of like to, to have the privilege to put on boots and go outside and the mundanity of that. And then also um, the sort of sense that there have been elders caring for young ones going so far back in time that although we don't know their stories, we, the, the magic of that, the scope of that is so mythical that if we lose touch with it, the mundanity can kind of collapse into frustration or, or confinement. But somehow if, if I find, if I stay in touch with that, it opens up into this amazing sense of like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a guardian, a steward yeah. for this life. And that matters. That matters. Yeah. Oh, you get the privilege then of witness Mm -hmm. and you still got to get out the door. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. For your listeners, if you haven't seen the Australian series Bluey yet, there's a great, it's a fantastic series. We just got into that. It's so good. There's a whole Bluey episode where the parents are trying to get the kids out the door. And (laughs) for the parents, it's hysterical. Every parent will recognize it. Um, I am in awe of my four-year-old niece's imagination. I was playing with her a few weeks ago and she said, okay. Now you be a squid and you have camouflage powers. I'm like, all right, I'll be a squid. And then she's like, no, you can't be a squid like that. <laughs> all right. And she's like, okay, now I'm going to be a wall. I'm like, all right, how does squid, like my, you know, just she doesn't have the rigidity of like, okay, now I'm going to be a wall. Yes. Now you be a wall. Okay, I'll, yes. I guess I'll be a wall. And yes. I just love the, um, the yes and improv of that, yes. you know. Mm. Um, mm. It seems even though like it's exhausting it, at the same time. It can be. <laughs> That's, that's fair. Like that's another, that's maybe another polarity or paradox is it's so enlivening to be in that imaginative space and it's demanding and it asks a lot of us, you know, in a way that the, the authors of that, the compilers of that Octavius brood are sort of, that's the invitation they're giving us is like, you can come, you can take everything that's in your life now, everything that you just haven't even thought about before and look at it and ask yourself, What's magical about this? Or how can I make this more magical? And, and that's, that's, a, that's a conscious, powerful, and big journey to go on. Because, boy, it just, could just be a lot easier if, you've, if you're safe and you have food in your belly to just say that's enough. And at times it is enough. But it is. Some, yeah. there's something about that, that polarity, too, the sort of mythic imagination of the future and also the, like, deep appreciation of just rest and connection to the moment that that I'm in touch with as we play right now. It's really fun playing with you in this space. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Well, you know, you you said that the wonder dome is a, is a deeper well, and that really meant a lot for me to you to call it that. And I can attest that personally, this is my practice of drinking from a deeper well. It just so happens that I'm pressing record and sharing it with other people, but it is really even if no one heard this, I can already, my body is already telling me that I've, that we're drinking deeply in that. And that's, a, that's an important act. Yeah. Mm. I think the listening is too, you know, the listening stories for me, fiction is absolutely a deeper well poetry. Um, but is it is a, any doorway where I can just pause and stop. There was a, a stunning moonrise the other evening that was just <sighs> gorgeous. And I was exhausted that day. I'd been going and going. Um, I just happened to have a lot of client things back to back. And, um, you know, it, it just literally stopped me in my tracks for a moment. So how do we make, you know, I, I do wonder how do we make each day a little bit more magical um, or just let it in. Hmm. Um, and I realized hmm. that, that hmm. Uh, you know, 
one can argue that that comes from a position of privilege, but I was on a Facebook group that I joined early on in COVID called The View From My Window. Mm. And um, it was just people posting the view from their windows, you know, where everybody was in lockdown. It's probably one of the largest global cohort effect phenomenons um, that we is uh, a, certainly that we will see in our lifetimes um, where we're all experiencing something similar. It was just fascinating that just, you know, whether it was people from all life circumstances, whether they, whether they lived in tiny tenements or, um, or just people with the most ridiculous views of these stunning vistas, <laughs> like in the mountains of Switzerland. But I loved, I loved those tiny windows into people just taking a moment to share the view out their window that day. Mm. And mm. it was a really mm. lovely thing mm. and a reminder that some things transcend privilege. Yeah. Mm. 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 Do you have a, is there a window you can see out from right now? I can, and I see it's behind me. I see the sea, and there's a lovely lane down to it. That's the privilege of living on a small island off the coast of Seattle. Uh, and uh, the sun is out, which is stunning um, and not that common for the Pacific Northwest, but it is out <laughs> right now. Yeah. Mm, mm. I'm a California girl at heart, so I, I deeply miss summer <laughs> in the winter of the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> mm. There's something about a lane leading into woods or to an ocean or to like a horizon that is just that's primordial there's something deeply human about that that longing or that calling this is one of those hidden symmetries my husband would say um that we have always had a relationship one of our most ancient relationships is between ground and horizon mm. right mm. Mm. the ground from which we step forth um, but if we only had ground, then we had a little, really limited perspective. Mm. And um, we need a horizon to draw us towards it. And uh, yet for those who only have horizon and no ground, you know, there isn't really that ability mm. um, to find their way towards that horizon mm. without the ground beneath mm. the trees. So that's another of those ongoing threads that we navigate mm. in order to be more able mm. for this life. Mm. 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 So is there a, one thing I hope for your listeners, um, you'd ask about the phrase to be more able for, and that's an yeah. Irish, uh, my husband's part Irish, part um, English, and uh, the entire notion of to be able for something, to be able for a, a circumstance you find yourself in, a relationship you find yourself in, mm. to be able for parenting mm. Um, mm. Uh, your small children, you know, today, um, to be able for a uh a difficult client conversation that I'll have later today. You know, um, mm. uh, I think things like drinking from a deeper well and paying attention to these hidden symmetries and having deep allies are all things that help you be more able for, you know, yeah. that moral imagination. Yeah. A, a, a truly challenging world. Mm. Mm. There are times when I'm at my, my most optimistic and I look out at my the the sort of my what I'm seeing when I look out at our collective space, which of course is one the view from my particular window uh, is very tiny as I try and do sense making about where we are as a species. But when I'm at my most optimistic, I wonder I or or I open to the possibility that there is in all of this the the possibility that we are becoming more able for our future that in some way we have to 
there's no way out but through that we have to if we if we can find our way through this moment that we're in as our ancestors have found their way through the moments that they've been in then then that's the journey ahead and i wonder how that lands with you absolutely lands with me right isn't the capability set that i know that i'm trying you know i i'm so grateful to my mother and father who came over to the us with 50 bucks in their pockets or my grandmother who moved countries twice, never knowing the language of the place that she ended up landing. Mm. Right. Mm. And they created an incredible platform for me Mm. Mm. um, to be who I wanted to be. Like I, my father says sometimes that if he'd raised me in Asia in, in, in the Philippines uh, where they landed at at the time that he knew them, you know, the, the, the possibility set of even careers, like the career I have, Curry, I don't know if it existed. Like it wasn't certainly in the imagination of of doctor, lawyer, engineer that the trifecta that I was presented with is viable <laughs> career options, right? This this thing of of psychologist slash, you know, organizational um trusted advisor, this this strange role that I occupy certainly, you know, um didn't exist. And so we, the possibilities feel so much more expanded for me than it did for my mm. Um, mm. parents' generation. And my mm. mother was already a vanguard. You know, she was one of the first female doctors in her, in her, in her, um, in her class. And uh, I really hope that for your children and my little nieces, that, mm. Mm. that maybe the f- role that they play in the world hasn't been born yet. Mm. Mm. Maybe they'll get to do something um, that hasn't yet been imagined as a, as a life calling or cause, or maybe they'll inhabit something that already exists that's deeply needed, but with, um, with, with wonders and technology to help them in new ways. You know, like my little, my younger niece who's one, something has very rare syndrome, but I have a lot of optimism that the medications and the options that are going to be available to her at 15 or 16 are going to be very different than the ones available to her at one, you know? And so the possibility sets, I hope for us expand. And they, uh, you know, I say that with a sense of optimism and there's another kind of grimmer part of me that's like, they better well expand because <laughs> we are um, environmentally and geopolitically looking at, at, you know, a fair number of ongoing shit shows. So, you know, again, that's another, um, dance to straddle between optimism and a certain stubborn optimism. I think that's mm, necessary mm, um, mm. that imagination and science fiction offers us and a, and a certain ability to look reality in the face and say, you know what? Things are not easy. Yeah. I say sometimes that this is a challenging era to be a systems thinker and an empath. <laughs> you look at those <laughs> things and I'm like, yeah. Thanks for presencing that yet again, that sort of polarity and there's a fierceness possible, like whatever role the next, whatever roles the next generation inhabits, I feel it's sort of deep wish and hope that, that to the extent that I'm able, again, I'll speak for my daughter to extent that I'm able to create enough support that she can step into that role fiercely and bravely. Yes. That that's like a, a, to be able for has had that quality. And I don't know what it is, you know, for your, for your parents, it was like, 
look at this doctor, healer, lawyer, you're, you know, like you can see how those archetypes were so potent and they still could be, they are still so potent for many people. Right. But also that there are maybe other archetypes that um, we don't yet have names for, or that we have maybe ancient names for that we need to bring back again, wayfinders and guides and, and frontier people and all of this sort of stuff that we might need as things shift, the ground shifts beneath us. Wayfinders is one I particularly love. Um, mm. And, uh, and I do think that it was interesting for me to realize that there, my parents' legacy of healer was one I was just inhabiting in a very different way in organizational life. Mm. Yes. It's certainly not yes. on my LinkedIn. It's not on my business cards. It's, it's not going to show up in, in a, a professional uh, bio, but it certainly I've been surprised at the way that it's shown up in my day-to-day work, especially because I often get called in um, when an organization has experienced uh, some form of trauma. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I might like, part of me would venture to guess that maybe one day it might actually show up on your bio or, or perhaps our, like the next iteration of what we do on their bio. I mean, I, I had Raj Sisodia on the show who has sort of helped found the conscious capitalism movement. And his latest book is, is the healing organization. It's, I mean, you yeah. know, he's the, there's something in the healer archetype that also we need. And more and more, I think people are waking up to that. Well, I appreciate already the loosening of um, uh, opening of permission to um, have that part of my identity. Yes. Perhaps be more, yes. a little bit more overtly yes. forward. Yes. Oh, Gail, this has been so fun. Um, I can see sort of our time boundary approaching. And, and I, I think I have one more question. And then maybe before I ask that, I'll, I'll plant a seed, which is to invite you to maybe pull up one more poem or one more something that we could close with. And so just let that land and trust that it'll arrive when it's ready. But I, I'm really like your, your invocation of the ground and the horizon um, is where I feel called to bring us towards as we close. And and just in a really personal way, I wonder as you locate yourself on the ground that you're on, literal, metaphorical, what's, what is the horizon you see yourself looking to or being called towards? What's, what's sort of the, the road ahead for you as best as you sense it? I'm a, when you're asking about the poem I had, I was thinking about um, Naomi Shihab Nye's kindness, but you are evoking a little bit of the... Uh, Antonio Machado, um, you walker, you know, mm. there is no road mm. by walking. You make the road. And, uh, um, we could read both. That would, be I know totally that both of them are, are, are stunningly beautiful, <laughs> but there, there is a sense that I'm making the road as I'm walking it. And this is a path that I've not yet trod. So, mm. um, mm. it's one that feels very emergent. Mm. Um, I, I know flavors of it rather than what the actual road looks like. Um, I want to continue, um, working in places that matter. So last week mm. I spent working with a voting rights organization because it feels deeply relevant in America at this moment in time. Um, yes. uh, so I, I particularly love working um, with organizations who's, who, who are trying to have impact on the, the really intractable, what feels like currently the intractable um, issues of the world. Um, 
I go to a human rights conference every May and I, I do a lot of mentoring for them because it's an amazing human rights conference called the Oslo Freedom Forum. Mm. I highly recommend it because it, mm. it's a it's a gathering of the world sort of rabble rousers and dissidents. And what's fascinating about it is that this incredible stories of human courage in, in, in the face of, the, of some of the worst circumstances, mm. Um, mm. whether it's uh, North Korea or um uh you know just living under oppressive regimes isis etc so you mm-hmm. like understanding the scale of humanity both the the, the truly hor- really horrific and the sublime all at once um is is stunning and um and i also just like to play so you know this it, we continue to have it this no, this this identity of auntie yes is yeah. <laughs> one that i um uh, enjoying fully and happening on my way to become a very quirky old woman. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I sense we could use a lot of quirky elders. So yes. I hope that as your journey continues, you fully inhabit that. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Gail. So, um, do you want to bring up the? Naomi yeah, I'll end with kindness. Okay. One of the essential ingredients of life. Mm. Um. Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved. All this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out and stay to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises his head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thank you for that. A little kinder to mm. one another in our days. Mm. Mm. Amen. Yeah. Thank you, Gail. This has been such, such a treat and a pleasure and a gift. Anytime. Mm. Mm. It is one of those delightful things that's a mutual pleasure, treat, and gift. <laughs> I receive that deeply. Thank you. And thanks everyone who hears this. I hope that It helps you find some path towards possibility space, towards kindness, towards some horizon that's calling you. Um, If folks want to find out more about your work, Gail, what's what's a good place for them to to head to? Oh, gailkarenyoung.com. Once I actually get around updating that website. (laughs) You got other things cooking. I tend to operate a bit covertly. All of my word is uh, all of my work is word of mouth. So, um, but I I am going to be doing more in the world. I've been certainly asked about it enough and i would like to so yeah i'll be cooking in that realm beautiful beautiful okay thanks everyone thanks for tuning into the wonder dome 
This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.